You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenged while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. All right, this is Jesse with the Voluntary Vixens, and I have a special guest with me today. I personally have witnessed her drowning when she was, well, how old were we? Oh, um, <laughs> I think maybe eight. eight. <laughs> so, and she laughed. Was, and I laughed funny. at her while she was drowning because I was too young to understand what was going on. And it, personally, now I realize that when you're drowning, you look really hilarious. Yeah. Spoiler alert, I survived. Oh, and her name is Kristen, and she's also an RN, and we've worked together, and we've been friends for ever. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be a good idea to have her on because we're going to talk about healthcare, uh, mostly from a nurse's perspective. Uh, I know that some of you guys who are listening have heard Tom Woods, or you've even read The Primal Prescription by Bob Murphy, and and um, I wish I could remember the physician's name that also co-wrote that book, but... You guys have heard the perspective of how healthcare has really just, it's not the ideal situation for anyone, mostly from the the physician point of view, but we're going to talk a little bit about how, as a nurse, how our healthcare system is really creating just not a very ideal uh, working environment for nurses, and it's definitely not ideal for the patients that we're supposed to be helping either. So... Um, let me just start first off, Kristen, do you want to just tell our listeners like your whole background in nursing and what your experience is? Well, um, I started off as a, I did an intern and well, it's called an externship. So I got to kind of explore a lot of areas in between my nursing, um, school experience. I got to experience like ICU, renal floor, uh, gero psych, which is just, you know, a, a geriatric population of psych- psychology, um, ER, uh, specialty cardiac center. So I got to work on those floors for anywhere from two weeks to a month at a time. So that was really an invaluable uh, experience because it allowed me to match up what I thought it would be like in my head with what it was in reality. And I ended up landing in the ER just because I have ADD and that works really well down there. That serves a purpose. Almost everybody in the ER has some form of it because you have to be able to complete a task fast and have a lot of um, balls in the air. Uh, So I went down there because you never see anything the same twice, even if it's the same situation, the circumstances are different because I have to be intellectually stimulated. So I thought this will be the best place. But of course, places that are high intensity, high adrenaline like that are high burnout rate. So... I made it about 10 years. I could never really completely get out of it. I would go PRN or as needed, if you don't know that terminology, um, and still work at other places. So I started off in the ER. I mean, I worked down there and got offered a job right out of nursing school, which is a little bit rare. Um, Did do some charge nursing as well while I was down there. Um, But then started doing a wellness program where I traveled, and I just kind of coached people how to get their cholesterol lower by natural means, quit smoking. Um, And it was actually for a company um, that had... For their thesis for the nurse practitioners was to create more of a wellness type of attitude from a employer standpoint. So um, 
I mainly did it for big name banks, but they had other some other companies and corporations all the way up to even Indiana. I had to get my license up there and travel up there once a quarter and do these evaluations. And what that did is when I would do their read their labs, interpret their labs for them with some doctor over overseeing me, um, I would coach them, bring them up on the on their health game, which would bring them down on their premium. So based on the score, their premiums. Were, it was a reward to get a cheaper premium, and they all got, also got access and discounts to like you know health fitness clubs and things of that nature. So that was very interesting to see it kind of from the corporate side of thing and the private um, healthcare kind of side of things. Uh, but it was not very challenging, and I was traveling a lot more than I was promised at the beginning, taking over people's territories because they were getting sick and things like that. So. Um, kind of rescale, went back to the ER. Uh, I did also do PACU, which is, um, it was for a day surgery place. So it was a little bit turn and burn. I like that fast pace. Um, so I really started noticing, like, I'm not really, I mean, like, I, I, I still like the challenge of nursing, but I'm not comfortable. I'm starting to look for places where I feel like I fit in more. So then I also started working for hospice and I loved hospice. Um, as a nurse, um, and the company I worked for at the time was not really being managed really well, really um, overworking me, and I tend to overgive of myself and overextend anyway, so I had to take some real personal responsibility for that part. Um, it's not always just changing places and not being satisfied with the employer. I had to take some personal responsibility about boundaries in my career. Um, then I, speaking of boundaries, I went completely the opposite direction, went to another hospice company and then I guess ended up kind of creating a job that helped transition people who were in home health into hospice. And through that job, um, I guess I got tapped to step up as an administrator. Wasn't a very good climate that I was stepped into. Hindsight, looking in, <laughs> um, I should not have been asked to investigate and let go of the pr my predecessor that people loved and respected. But there were some things going on behind the scenes that were not on the up and up, which I think created a culture of fear and there was already a culture of fear because in the short period of time I was there, it was bought out twice and um, restructured a little bit. And then I was privy to that as well. We could really dig into layers of that, but I went back to the ER and also the ICU with that. I also worked in a um, integrative medicine office at the same time, kind of filling in here and there. And ICU, essentially, I was, I loved the challenge. And then I eventually kind of already got burnt out with that within a year and was thinking I need to just, you know, I don't need the challenge. I just want to have something. I come in, punch a clock and leave, and then I'll, I'll, you know, meet the other needs in my life elsewhere. So I was thinking of going to CRNA school and my friend who runs a integrative medicine, aesthetics and sexual wellness, which is really interesting to me. And, and, you know, you don't have to just take getting older lying down or you can if you want to because now you have options you can take it laying down or on top or to the side or whatever position you want because there's sexual wellness up there so it was new <laughs> and interesting and I thought you know Kristen guys <laughs> I know sorry I'm just I am very open about you know I feel like we need to have that conversation and start that conversation in America because we've got options now we don't have to just um you know, take getting old, um, and not have any solutions. So, and it's my friend's business, which is always a little bit, you have to be, you have to tread carefully with that, but I think it's going really well. I really love her vision and her goal. And we do need to change the, the tide or the climate of how we look at things, do more preventative medicine, look at things from an approach that you can do some nat natural approaches, but you, you know, sometimes you need the, 
you know, the hospital system and medications, but let's marry those together. They don't have to be against each other. So that's where I've landed now, but I'm just finding that there's, there's a, a point in nursing school where they tell you over and over again that nursing in any medical field um, is really a blend of art versus, with science, and we're really missing the art part. The yeah. people that have worked in the industry do develop that gut sensation, but you know everything's run by the insurance companies. Forget that we've gone to school and that we've had years of experience. They're dictating how we do healthcare. And so that's why, you know, I was really looking to get out of the paid, you know, the insurance paid system. And that's really freed me up and I'm able to connect. But now I'm to a point where I have to take responsibility for my own energy and I need to tap back into some creative things. So this job's going to allow me to go out, search, search those some of those things, but still connect with people and not be pressured. What I loved about hospice was the connection and the art that we could do. What I did not love is you're still working for yeah. a corporation that... And you have time constraints. Yeah, dic dictates the time. So somebody might only want 15 minutes, get me my meds and get out of here because I'm having a bad day and I'm annoyed. That's fine. But then there's some people who are just having a breakdown. And yeah, they have a chaplain. Yeah, they have a social worker. But right then and there, they're breaking down in front of you. They're trusting you. They're you they need you to hold the space for them. But you've got five other patients, so that's what you're worried about. So you're not present. You're not focused. You're not connected no matter how intentional you are to be so there's just always that element that's pulling you out of the present and i really really that's killing the nurses but also the do more with less is killing yeah. the nurses because you're a data monkey you spend more time charting than touching the patient right and that's there, there's something healing about two people connecting and meeting a need emotionally so that they can drop down their walls and really be honest about what they really need. Cause people, you know, yes. are afraid to ask for things anymore because they know they're not going to get it and they don't want to be disappointed on top of feeling sick. So it's just really a messy situation. And it's all because we've got way too much, um, you know, regulations on things. It's gotten over-regulated. Yeah, I would say that it's a combination because we have Medicare, which is the gold standard for all insurance, is really that drives the prices a certain way. Um, but we also have uh, insurances that are taking away the hospital's transparency because mm -hmm. they're like the third. The hospital doesn't have to care about the patient or the family. They need to make sure the, the insurance is happy first. Yeah. And so that's where we're dropping the ball. Um, and one of the things I was going to say is, um, I want to kind of focus a lot more on just the hospital system because I feel like that is really where it's more transparent to people into the world, like where it's falling apart. It's a pressure cooker. Anybody that walks into hospital, sit there for a little while, just observe. I, I, I guarantee you, your nurses are not lazy. Um, they're not angry people. They and got they into the field be. for the right reason. It's just... They've they're they've got compassion fatigue yes. because they they have they have administration that don't understand what it is to touch a patient. We've gotten away from having doctors that run hospitals. We have people who went to classes and we're giving cookie cutter answers about how you make that meet that bottom line, mm -hmm. um, and they're not thinking about the culture. They're not thinking if you if my theory when I did administration is if I do some team building and really take care of my employees and they feel supported. Like if they mess up, what is it? Is it just they don't have the knowledge? They're overworked. There's there something going on at home. You know, I have to have the time to really get to know my employees and meet them where they are yes. to supplement what they need to provide that. If you really take your employees, 
most of us get in a job for the right reason. Trust that we're given, stop micromanaging how we do things and, and give us a little bit of trust and autonomy and how we deliver that with safety in mind. It can be done. I will say that administration in general, um, there was a panic when Medicare, Medicaid started saying, well, we're only going to give you this much and we're going to make it very difficult. You're going to have to spend years, maybe even months or months, maybe even years getting all that money back, getting the most you can. So the first knee-jerk reaction was, like, because by the way, our compensation's based on opinions, a survey, basically like we're yes. a hospital in the, in the field of hospitality. Yeah, it's called the HCAP scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big one, a big question that always screws over hospitals is, was your pain taken care of? And what was it? Did a nurse or somebody come timely enough when you right. hit the call light? Those are two that I, when I was in the hospital that I, on every floor that I was at, it was always a problem because yeah. first off, there's an unrealistic expectation that people have when they come into the hospital. And my first unit that I worked on was the orthopedic floor. That's the hip and knee mm-hmm. replacements. And, and then it was also just the everybody who had surgery flow over floor. And okay, you have bone cut. you know into and you also have like deep muscle cut into and you're sewed back together um if you at any point abused pain medication before you had surgery what we have to give you isn't gonna fix it and that's let's be honest (laughs) we can break down how many epidemics are happening and let's also be honest that whole pain thing i don't know if you guys are aware but the government set in place that yes if you don't address Anything, anybody, I'm not trying to give people information to go in and get pain meds, but let's just be <laughs> transparent here. If you are a four or above and we don't address it, there were doctors getting fired over that. Yeah, you can get, actually, I think it's now you get, um, I think you get, actually get fined yeah. for that, right? Yeah, and so, but people were scared of losing their jobs. We call it don't feed the bears because they'll keep coming back and they'll doctor shop in the ER specifically is where we saw this on the forefront because they don't make it up to the force because most of their stuff's not legitimate. But when they say they're at a 10 out of 10 and they're on the phone, they're eating Cheetos or laughing and they have the ability to, you know, get up and walk around. To me, that's not a 10. I, you know, not to be a smart ass, but, um, you know, when I'm asking you what your pain is and you're telling me a 10 and I say, well, so I'm, if, if I cut off your arm right now, you're telling me there's no room for more pain. You're, there's no more pain. You can't top that off. Um, so it's got to be also in context, like zero is no pain at all. 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. So if you've got somebody who's only ever had a paper cut and then they've broken their toe, that's going to be their 10. Um, so what that did is they also made pain the fifth vital sign. It's not a vital sign. Uh, you can pass out from pain. You're not going to die from pain. And let's be (laughs) honest to break it down even further. Pain is a necessary, um, process in our bodies and just emotionally catharsis is, is, something that helps you build. I mean, when we break a bone, it's painful when it heals, but it usually heals back stronger unless you have some underlying issues. Um, and pain, you know, if we numb your pain completely and something else pops up that, you know, you've had surgery and you're starting to have some belly pain that wasn't there before, how are you going to know that if we kill the pain completely? In other right. cultures, we're, they're not so hyperactive about completely taking your pain down. That's why I try to manage the expectations of patients. Like, listen, we may not be able to take your pain completely away. We want it to be manageable. That's, that's the goal. But the government says, no, we want the goal to be, they don't perceive any pain um, and not giving any room for the expertise. So I personally, not to dig down even more, I, you know, 
the government set that up, that fifth, the fifth vital sign was pain, and you had to address it if it was four. People were getting fired, so they just started feeding the bears. They started coming back and getting more and more scripts. Before yeah. we had regulations in, I personally have a friend that got caught up in that um, and was appropriate with all of her stuff, but they made an example out of her in a, in a pain clinic before there was even regulations. Um, no accountability for these patients taking advantage of the system. All put on the system. Yeah. And no, so, it's not the system. Yeah. It's put on the individuals. Right. I feel like, and this is why I felt like it was really important to put a, a nurse's voice behind this because I feel like a lot of times doctors can doctors get a little bit of a say and the patients always will get a say. The government will have the final word, but where's our voice in all of it? Because we're the ones that we don't prescribe the pain medicine, but we're the ones that give the pain Mm -hmm. medicine. But if something happens after that patient is given that medication, let's say they pass out or their blood pressure drops and they start to feel worse or the, or the pain medicine isn't working at all. It always falls on us that we weren't doing enough. Yeah. And, um, it could be where we end up getting written up for it or we get fired for it or, You know, it's just, who knows? Um, And that's what happened to your friend, I think, is that, you know, she was, she was the, the first person to touch the patients and all that stuff. So she gets the... Well, and she was a nurse, nurse practitioner, but like I said, the government created that issue. And then when they started addressing it, they're like, wait, you're over addressing this issue. So now we're going to make an example out of you and criminalize this, but we've told you to do it. It's, yeah. And so instead of, you know, anytime there's a conflict or problem. You can't change other people. That doesn't just mean if it's an individual, but it's also two two big groups. You can't change the other group. You have to look inward and do some self analysis, um, and say, you know, what's our part? How do we? How do we carry responsibility in this? And let's fix this. And I think that's kind of where we need to go with the healthcare industry. We need to take personal responsibility. And if we don't like the way the hospital's going, you know, the best protest is to stop working there. I mean, I know people feel yes. like they can't, but there's a way to do that. That's why you've got doctors that are not taking insurance anymore. There's a couple here in where we are that, um, like I said, they're they're integrative medicine and things like that, but they can operate as doctors because, you know, most of them are either ER doctors or practicing, practicing physicians in hospitals that have escaped the hospital. And I really, truly mean escape. Um, and so... It, then you've got on the other spectrum, you've got some practices that are having like a club membership, like you pay $60 a month and that covers your labs, your exams. If you have to do x-rays or MRIs, they have a cash basis um, type of deal with those yeah. companies to pay less because they're getting cash because they love that too, because they're not having to fight with Medicare or Medicaid to get paid. And there's not a delay of months to get paid. They'd rather just have less, lesser cash on the front end. And that's how, that's where we're going. So it will, I think even if we don't change government, which we don't want to get government more involved. Yeah, please. We've already got government involved. Yeah. They said they were going to fix the problem they created and they the made it worse. So please, for the love of God, can we stop with this? So I think if we just as consumers and also nurses take personal responsibility for just not feeding into that system, not partaking it. And that's easier said than done. I realize that. But wake <laughs> up and maybe look at a different answer. It's not a cookie cutter. It's not either you, you're you for it or against it. There are some things in the middle that we can look at and kind of make a marriage of both worlds and make it work. But we've got to start waking up as nurses. And I agree, we don't have a voice, but we're start. some of us are starting to get our head out of the sand. You know, we're not ostriches sticking our heads in the sand anymore. And there's a group called Nurses Take DC and some other groups. I mean, there's some forums on Facebook that are starting to have these discussions and really band together. But the problem is that system 
um, that that gear that's overworked and not oiled and not tended to enough where everybody's burning out, it's going to explode. But for the most part, people are staying so busy by working 12 hour shifts over and over trying to get make ends meet with um, the nursing careers. They're too tired to stand up and, yeah. and, and have a voice. They're too it's tired true. to attend these functions in DC and um, really band together. So slowly but surely you got people who, you know, maybe are getting close to retirement age or are independently wealthy and they really do just love doing, um, you know, like nursing. I would love to do hospice under the guise of just volunteer at some point um, so that nobody can dictate how much time I spend with those patients. Um, but, you know, you've got some people who are waking up and those people, are, we're going to have to look to them to lead. So let's support those leaders. I mean, we don't have to agree all the time, but let's support them in, in digging and finding ways that we can fix this because we can't, the government's not going to do it. So it's up to us. It really is up to us. Um, but I also, also want to encourage patients to take responsibility for, we're so quick to complain, but when you get somebody that's good that you can tell that may be stressed, but is really making that effort to care, really lift them up. Because if, if, they're, if hospital systems or any type of system is starting to see that that's the response they're getting, that, you know, when they get these H caps, yeah, they were upset about the pain, but they really had some phenomenal nurses. They'll stop blaming the nurses. Um, yeah. And like I said, what people don't realize is the ER specifically has become a breeding ground. Personally, this state um, that we're in right now, we have a very dependent um, government healthcare system to the point where people move from states to come here. Um, and let's face it, if you're on government assistance, you probably cannot afford uh, a copay. I'm a single parent. I struggled. So I, I, I get it. You try to make ends meet as best you can. So I don't put much blame on them because why wouldn't you go to the ER and not have a copay? You don't have to pay a copay when you go to the ER. You get immediate results, immediate medication. So if you've got a cold for even a day, why not partake of that care of that so that you don't miss work? And so the ERs are overrun. We can't yeah. focus on the actual function. And then so if that's kind of the front door and or the foundation of the healthcare system of where they get, you know, divided into these subgroups like orthopedic or, you know, a general surgery floor or wherever, and they're getting sent to where they need to go, and you don't have that running well and not being abused, it's going to be a trickle-down effect. So my my purpose of, of saying that, too, is, you know, take ownership, don't overrun the system. And what people also don't understand is HCAPs, if they don't get admitted to the hospital, um, then that's the the opinions that go in for the ER. If they get admitted to the hospital, whether we saved their life or not, or they spent like hours down in the ER and we stabilized them so that they could go to another floor and recuperate or heal or um, stay alive, uh, those floors get those HCAP scores. So a lot of people don't realize that. And it, it really is based on opinion. And the average consumer, um, yeah, you have WebMD and Google, but if, okay, so you know that that's what you have, well, heal yourself. Does Google tell you that? No, it doesn't. You need that system. So, you know, you may think you're a good consumer, but you really don't know what good healthcare looks like. Yeah, you may not have gotten Doritos upon request. You may not have, your call light may have taken 10, 15 minutes for somebody to even pick it up and respond because they were working a code and you don't know what's going on. And we try to keep that quiet because of HIPAA. But, you know, did you, did, did your, did your doctor create the right care? And, and sometimes that's, that, that's not the case too, because they're overworked too. They're having to see so many patients so strained. Um, so, you know, make an, make an effort to put in those comment sections. Like my doctor did the best they could. I felt like I got the best care, but they seem very stressed. Like they don't have a lot of time. Um, 
So I'm those types of things. Questions. Yeah. I was looking uh, before we had this meeting, I was just going to, I was looking on Google to see what Google would say. Of course you were. Yeah. Um, what articles they would pull up. So one of the the question I put into Google was, what are some some problems with modern hospitals? Um, The first thing that popped up was an article from Becker's Hospital Review. Um, Five common hospital problems. Now, this is dated from 2011, so I don't think it's, you know, going to be completely the same problems that we're having, but it's pretty similar from what I saw. Um, It said, too many avoidable patient days. And what they mean by that, I think you know what that means. Like, Mm -hmm. um, days that they could probably go ahead and discharge a patient. They don't need to be in the hospital for that as long as they, you know, they may. Yeah, we actually had C-suite meetings about just that for hospice patients because they sometimes didn't have a home to go to. They didn't know what to do with them, so they just stayed on the hospital and they get dinged if there's mortality. And we mm-hmm. know that they're going towards mortality. That was a, a solution. It put them into hospice care. It's called general inpatient. Um, and they can be on hospice. But, you know, doctors are too stressed and busy to really look at how do we get them out the door. See, I feel like just having my experience in the hospital, and I, this is also including, like, my experience as a psychiatric, working in psychiatric um, facility, is that sometimes we because there's so few eyes on the patient, especially a physician's eyes on the patient, and it's so dependent upon the nurse who already has, like, mm-hmm. God knows how many patients, that maybe the reason why they're staying longer is because we just can't see the progress, or maybe they need to stay longer, Yeah, you know, and, and we think, discharge them too soon. <laughs> well, and I think the perception is correct for a lot of people. It's not always correct, but... The sad thing is, is some of the people who need to stay get discharged too early and some of the people who need to get out because of outside things like how are we going to get them home? Uh, What are they going to do when they get home? Have we set up um, home health when they get out of here? All that stuff takes more time than it should to arrange because also our case managers are overworked. They're really overworked. Um, And those are nurses too, but they're pivotal point of the hospital and they're overworked and they coordinate all that stuff so that we can fully care for the patient after they've left the ER or the hospital altogether. And, you know, I, I, I just feel like you heal better at home when you can get back into a routine, unless you're just, you have an unhealthy routine. So let's give them the tools. Let's get them back to where they're, they don't need to be perfectly well, but we also need to take some more responsibility as a patient and a consumer to actually take care of ourselves and be compliant. Yes. And well, that's that, the that problem. That another one. We're blamed saying, for the compliance issue. Well, we pay for you it. said that the consumer is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. That is one of the biggest things. I think that that's what they actually mentioned here is unhealthy community. Our patients are, we're seeing more patients that are smokers, that are um uh, drug addicted or, or they're not taking their diabetes diabetes met diabetes or they're diabetic because they, have, they eat a horrible <laughs> effing diet yeah um or they're alcoholics and that also compounds everything we have a high rate of obese patients um i've had multiple times throughout my career um had to put some people in bariatric pe- beds because the regular hospital beds are way too small for them mm. um that, I'm sorry, is personal responsibility. Sorry, that's our sorry. friend's dog. Yeah. Um, she, he's re- she's really angry about it. Um, yeah, I hurt her feelings. Yeah. So, I, I mean, on the, in that same vein, I want to mention this, that, you know, and 
I don't want to go to a socialistic society or anything of that nature. Um, but if you look at some other countries where they have decriminalized, um, this is completely going out of left field in some ways, but, uh, you know, illegal substances like marijuana or drugs, and they've poured that money instead of the fight or the war on drugs, they've poured that money into rehabilitation, specifically if you look at Portugal and some other areas like that, where they poured that money into rehabilitation, getting people back into society, getting them jobs. Um, There is one where instead of putting that money towards the fight on drugs, they've put that money towards, we will compensate businesses that will hire some of these people who have gone through recovery, we'll pay half of their salary if they'll meet us in the middle and they get a job, they start feeling tapped back in. I'm not saying that's the answer, but there's other solutions. We don't have to keep beating our head against the wall and trying to make something work that's not worked for years and is taxing our system. So when you are faced with patients that are non-compliant, they're not taking their diabetes meds, there's some psychological issues. They don't feel either worthy of getting better. They don't want to make changes. They don't have the support. So if we start really thinking about that, you're already paying Bukus of tax dollars because they're not compliant. Why not empower these case managers and other resources to send them home with to be compliant, get some education, support them more. That's why you've got all these insurance companies, which are part of the problem, but they're starting to look at, we're going to send people out in the field to make sure you're compliant. Accountability is only one cog to that wheel. Uh, there needs to be other things in place, but again, that's where we can take personal responsibility. We can have privatized companies that can offer those things in hospitals and not be tied into the government that can make a lot of difference. So looking at things like that from a different perspective and how can we fix this problem needs to be kind of the conversation that started. I, you know, we can all agree to disagree and we can throw some ideas and brainstorm, but we really need to start opening up the conversation about that. Right. Well, here's another thing to think about, and it's a little offensive, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Financial issues was was another uh, thing that they mentioned in this article, and um, I was thinking, well, financial issues is a big thing that libertarians hate getting involved in because that means that either we need to have a welfare state or we have to tell people that are poor, well, you need to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with it. But I'm somewhere kind of like this. You got to look at all the choices that you made. We just talked about poor health choices, okay? Um, you also have to look at poor financial choices. Are you like the type of person that as soon as you get your paycheck, it's already spent by the end of the week and you're waiting until the next time that you get a paycheck? Or are you the type of person that tucks away money every so often and you have a nest egg sort of saved up? Well, that's the that's what it's going to come down to. Um and it's I mean, okay if you live by the moment, but you have to understand that, that at that point, that's not the government's fault because you don't want to plan for the future and you want to live in the now. I get and it. And let's just face it too. It's not just the government's fault because when you do that, you're putting a burden on all these other people. You were just talking about how people use like the ER, like like their personal doctors, for example. Well, that's great for you. You owe, you don't even have to pay a bill. You keep getting all these bills in the in the in your mailbox from the hospital down the street and you're like, eh, I'm not going to pay it. And you know that nothing's going to happen to you. Or you got on the other end, people who do want to pay it, but the hospitals are suing them. Yes. <laughs> Even their own employees, which I've experienced, um, based on bad billing processes and uh, what's called balanced billing. Look it up. 
And I will say, if you want to know more about the hospital system and how it's breaking financially, if you want to look into that, Martin Mercury has a book called Unaccountable and also a new book called The Price We Pay About the Hospital System. But that's going to another area Well, I was going to say, if you ever... Okay, one of the things that I did when I was um, going to nursing school, and this is like between my therapy degree and getting my nursing degree, I worked for um, a cardiac rehab and I was doing the the assessments on all the patients to assess their anxieties and all the stuff because at the outpatient cardiac facility, they, they realized that your mental health is going to be a big part of you recovering from a cardiac surgery and a cardiac event. So, um, in a respiratory event as well. So, um, one of the things that I heard a lot of people say is they were very stressed out about their bills after mm-hmm. they had a uh, triple bypass surgery or whatever. Um, and they, one guy was like, I got this pillow. They told me to, it was my cardiac pillow. And I thought that they were just giving it to me. And then I looked at my bill and I saw yeah. that they charged me $45 for a pillow. That's the heart pillow that you hug to, uh, you know, brace yourself when you cough so it doesn't hurt so much after open heart. And one of the things that that book I mentioned ta- does talk about is the transparency of the balance billing and all that stuff is, is very, very Not everybody lax. looks at their bills. Well, it's lax. And because this, this gentleman um, looked at a study where they called 100 different hospitals and asked just what's the price if I were to pay out of pocket, and it went anywhere from like forty thousand dollars I think to a hundred thousand dollars. Same procedure, you know. So what's the discrepancy there? And when you start to look at itemized stuff, I'm you know I'm, I failed to mention I did do a year in quality improvement, which means I would do nurse driven protocols. I I helped make sure that we were compliant before JCO or any of the governing entities from the government would come in and do audits. I worked with auditing outside to the point where the hospitals spend money with outside non-bi or you know non-biased auditing companies to come in, audit us as, as if they were the government so that they can see things, we can fix it before the government gets there so that they're not closed down and fined heavily. Um, to the point also that one of those leaders in one of those other companies was hired on to fix some things and I just, it was, I, I was a data monkey. I basically was so removed from nursing and not connecting with nurses. And my whole goal and excitement of taking that position was I helped get a chest pain center accredited that was attached to the ER, ER and that was suggested to me that I'd be good at it. And I thought, here's a chance for me to help my fellow nurse. Not one bit of what I did helped. I was looked at as the enemy when I came on the floor to try to come up with solutions. Basically, every solution was was based in, let's give them another piece of paper. Let's do more charting. Yeah. Let's... And that's why nurses that wasn't hate the answer. you guys. <laughs> uh, that's, and, and, you know, I, you know, and I get it. I get it. But I really did want to help and streamline things and make things efficient. But I was in the system that was really, I was constrained in how to do that. And um, so that's how I know a lot about the back end and the administrative part of it, other than just also having C-suite meetings from a, um, an administrator position in hospice with those hospitals and working with them. But it's just, I, I cannot tell you enough how, different it goes from state to state and we're so if we're so government run then why does it look so different why does it look so because well, we're not organized because why can't we they have don't insurance have the knowledge that goes across state right that's another thing is we have like the blue cross blue shield of tennessee blue cross blue shield of illinois right. why 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 do we need that because every state has to be different yeah. my my thing is is that um insurance in general thanks to medicare is just 
it's taking away the patient's ability to know exactly what they're paying for and what they really need. Yeah. Um, because some like like that guy, he didn't know he needed a cardiac pillow. He could have yeah. just been told go to go to CVS and just or bring pick home up a, a really dollar yeah pillow. Firm, pick up a firm pillow. Yeah. Or bring it from home. And so there's no there's no options given the, to the consumers. There's no in, yes. information given to the consumers. And I mean, consumers as in patients. I, ha- I kind of hate that because even but in nursing school, they, don't even know they call them clients. Stuff. I know because really, do you need that in your right. everyday work? Let me just no. tell you a story that really pissed me off. So when I worked on the oncology floor, we had this patient who I think she was malingering. And I think that she was, and if you guys don't know what malingering means, like they are sort of faking sick or like they are sick, but they're not as sick as they Just FYI, there are a lot of pseudo seizures. If they can stare at you from one open cracked eye while they're having a seizure, that's not a real seizure. It happens right. more than you guys think. So if you're in an ER and you ever see somebody having a seizure and you don't see the nurses responding, it may be a problem, but it may also not be a problem. Okay, sidebar, back to what you're right. saying. Well, this one, <laughs> this girl... She was a piece of work. I'm telling you. Um, she was like in her thirties and her mom was still taking care of her because her mom is just said that she has some kind of mental issues, which I couldn't readily see. Like she didn't like, you know, she didn't have down syndrome and she didn't have like any physical attributes. Right. And she could also talk to me in complete sentences and tell me how she felt and everything. But we had her in a catheter, a urinary catheter for some reason, and she had told her doctor, who only had seen her maybe two or three times the entire time, and we were, it was a weekend now, so that doctor wasn't there, um, that, that, that she has urinary incontinence of some kind. So she, that means that she pees on herself for no reason. Or, Which could or, be a lot of things, functional, neurogenic bladder, lots of things. Yeah, so, yeah, and she also said that sometimes she had retention and she couldn't pee at all. So they they had a catheter in her while she was in the hospital. Well, when she's discharging, you know, we usually will pull the catheter and make them pee before they leave. Um, So anyways, it was just a cluster. The mom did not want to discharge this patient, even though this patient is well above the age of consent to, to tell us what she wants to do. And she was ready to leave. The ER or the doctor that was there on the weekend was ready to discharge her and because she'd been there for like five or six days. And um, I'm on a weekend and my manager's not there. I don't have anybody to talk to. I have to talk to the house supervisor. The house supervisor is not familiar with this patient. I had never seen this patient. They're taking care of the whole hospital. I had never seen this patient before until this weekend because I was working a weekend shift. So I had no way of knowing like how this patient had been doing all week. All I know is that I pulled her catheter. She was getting up, walking around. She went to go pee. The The mother complained that um, we discharged her too soon and that we were... Um, and one of the things that the that the doctor said was, we'll go ahead and we'll order her some um, straight caths. Yeah. yeah. So she can cath herself. And I brought... I printed off some information to her how to do it. And uh, anyways, Monday rolls around. I get chewed out. I get pulled into the office. The The... The um, manager is like, why did you let this patient discharge? She was not ready to discharge. The mom has chewed me out. She's afraid she's going to have Because a, we have that power to discharge and, and admit bladder. patients. Yeah, and, and I was like, I didn't just... I mean, the doctors wrote an order for discharge, I, and the patient is 
of age to be able to tell me what she wants to do. We pulled the catheter. She walked. She peed. Everything she was supposed to do. And the first thing the manager was like, well, did you chart all this stuff? And I was like, uh, I think so. And she looked through my charting and she said it wasn't sufficient enough. Mm-hmm. And that if I would go back and, and chart what I told her, it would look suspicious. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways because. Right. <laughs> but the the, ba- the basic thing was, is I got basically what my manager told me instead of supporting me, instead of, instead of defending me to this this mother who I don't know what the deal is with them. She, she chewed me out right. and she said that if this patient's bladder ruptured, it's your license on the line. So <laughs> I was needless to say pretty mad about it. And I was just thinking, why does everything fall on my shoulders? Right. I did. I, I just have the nurse is there to follow orders. Well, and the manager at that point, I would say, did not think about she's putting having pressure put on her. She didn't think about is this really a hospital driven protocol or is this something that if it's chronic needs to be a physician a private physician cared for thing because it's going to be an ongoing thing at this point you've done the emergent part and stabilized her that should be a primary care physician thing yeah so it's displaced anger from that mom and you need to hold that space sometimes that people don't understand the system and to inform and educate don't just oh she's getting angry let me go yell at more people because she's angry yeah and another thing, too, she also mentioned, was like, you only gave her, um, I don't know, I gave her like three straight cats because I figured it would help her get through the weekend. Um, and then um, she was like, you only, you only gave her straight three straight cats. And I told her, well, I wrote, a, I wrote an order that the doctor signed for her to get more. Yeah. And she's like, well, what if something happens and before then? I'm like, I can't control everything that happens Outside of the hospital. There are um, equipment places to get those. You don't even have to send out for them. So if it's an emergent thing. this is what And that happens. would have been questions to ask why they were still in the hospital. And this is why nurses are... Okay, so this kind of leads me to my next thing. Nurses are getting way burnt out. I don't know of any person that I'm friends with as a nurse that is like, this is an easy job. It's so rewarding. I love it. I, I can't complain. Yeah. Um, because that's what... I mean... Your license is always being threatened. And when you have something happen to your license, it is a pain in the butt, let me just say, Mm -hmm. to try and get it reinstated. Um, They make it If you do drugs, it's very easy. There's a system in place. If you've been um, diverting medications or you're addicted, it's a lot easier to retain and keep your job and your license than it is if you mischart something or Mm -hmm. you, you know, are part of a different group that's doing something that you weren't even aware of. You can get pulled into that. That's what happened with my friend. Um, So again, I really feel like when it comes to consumer at that time, if the mother was that concerned, why didn't she ask those questions then? But I'll tell you also on their, on, on, in their defense, like in kind of tying into the burnout, you know, we are in that discharge, trying to do a good discharge with good information, good education, give them time to ask questions, do demonstrations and demo back to us so that we can see that they've got the skills to do what they need to do when they go home. From the back of your head, you're thinking of all the other patients that you have to get to, all yes. the charting you have to get to. So it's under stress. And I'm sorry, there's an there's underlying understanding. And can, when you connect with somebody, if somebody's stressed, they're not in a receptive place. They're, they, they can sense that and they're not in a receptive place or they probably feel like I don't want to bug them and ask them questions. So it doesn't just affect us. It affects our patients a, in a real way. Um, and 
you know, I don't think when Jesse said it's not, you know, this job's going to be easy. Nobody goes into nursing expecting it to be easy because let's face it, the emotional stuff that you bring home and you have to learn how to put down and um, you have to learn how to put up boundaries where you can help the person, but you can also keep your cup filled. You can't pour from an empty cup if we're talking about like energy wise or emotion wise or however yes. you want to put it. Um, that in and of itself is hard. So why are we putting more stress? Why am I touching keyboards more than I'm touching a patient? Right. That's a concern. And the th another thing about nursing school too, that I really can't stand is that we're always taught, like we're going to have this one patient. Like I remember that would always be the scenario is like, you have one patient. So what are you going to do with this one patient? Well, if I only had one patient, yeah. I would have sat down with this patient. I would have shown her how to strike cath herself. I wouldn't have just handed her some paperwork. I would have made sure I'd actually have her demonstrate back to me how to do it. Right. I would have done a whole bunch of things that, you know, that would have been amazing, but she would have been annoyed with you, but she would have been welcome. Yeah. She'd be like, get out of my face. <laughs> but I didn't have the time to do that. I did have other patients that I was also dealing with too. And a lot of times when you're doing a discharge, you're also admitting patients and you're also having patients calling out for various reasons it's it's not where you have the undivided attention. You can give your patient that you know undivided attention, and it's just not ideal. I don't, and that's one of the things I never like. Uh, Kristen is a very multitask. She loves to be busy, and she loves to have that adrenaline rush. I do not. I'm trying to learn how to put that down, and I'm, I'll tell you though, it it has given me. Like in every area of the life, I'm in an area now where that is actually not serving me. That to be able to be calm in chaos, because when there's no chaos, that's when I get anxious because I'm like, what? I feel like I'm not working. I feel like I'm not doing, I feel like I, something's going to drop. So, you know, that type of stuff plays into it, but it really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. But it, there's a lot of psychological stuff that goes on that kind of plays into the nurses not being able to really sit down and make and like really thoughtful decisions for you as the patient. And so when you are hitting that, just keep in mind when you're hitting that call, like we want to serve you. We want to even give you the, sometimes it's a small thing. So if, you know, you want, you know, an uh, insure, an extra insure, and we have to, we have to call down to dietary to get that. It's not just a, I go to the fridge sometimes and bring it right back to you. But every little person that does that, there's six or seven other patients that want something that we're running and getting those things. So are we really in that moment sitting down and saying, okay, let me review these medications. Maybe we're over medicating this person, or maybe this mm -hmm. isn't the right medication for them. Maybe I because really, I don't think consumers understand just how nurse driven things are because we are the eyes and ears and doctors know which nurses to trust and which ones don't uh, to not trust or if they're baby nurses to, you know, help them learn. So when I come to a doctor, I never come to a doctor with, I mean, I think in life, anytime you come to somebody with a problem, you should have suggested solutions and that's what doctors want and that's what they need. And so really you're depending heavily on those nurses because of how strained the system is. Yeah. So you've got more intelligent nurses than like back in the day when you, the requirements for being a nurse was you could, you couldn't be attractive and you had to, couldn't be wasp wasted and you did things like empty bedpans. This is, you know critical thinking that we're applying and going to the doctors and making suggestions. And they're saying, okay, well, I trust your judgment once they get to know you. So we're driving the care. So to strain that level of the hospital providers um, really is a, to a detriment of your care. I mean, right. and a bigger level than I pe think people understand. And I think too, it's just that when you, uh, okay. So one of the things that I got into a debate with, um, with some of my fellow like libertarians is um, 
we were talking about how are hospitals for profit or not for profit. Doesn't matter. It it, um, it really technically <laughs> like the hospitals that I've worked for were all considered non profit, but there is a profit. And, I've and for let's both. just be real. In order for a for a business to stay open and to serve the people, it has to make a profit. Yeah. It has to. You. If you want your, uh, you want to have good nurses that care about doing their job, they have to have a paycheck. Yeah. That's where that profit comes from. Um, everybody that you are interacting with and that's saving your life in the hospital, they all have a paycheck. They all have a price that they need to be paid in order to have a, you know, to keep their life going. Mm-hmm. And if you think that we'd be better off with like a single payer system or a universal healthcare type system, then you're basically saying that you think that people like me and Kristen are slaves. We yeah. don't deserve to well, be paid for our work. Well, they're messing up the system that's there. It's going to be a mess if it's universal. And let's be honest, we don't have the culture for that to work because in other areas where it seemingly works, which, you know, we there's always a, outliers. We have a major entitlement. We have, right. We have give an inch, they'll take a yard type of thing. Not even just a foot. They'll take a yard. We, so we we've got to change the culture before that's ever going to work. We live in a society where we don't take care of our own family. Right. I mean, that's another thing is that it, we used to live in a society where you take care of your own. You take care of your own kids. You take care of your mother, your father. Now you dump it. It's a problem. Now you just dump them in the in the ER and then you don't go visit them in the hospital it's, until it's time to discharge. Yeah, like my pa- Like my patient, for example... Her mom just shows up when it's time to pick her up, and she doesn't think she's ready to come home. Um, but You created from, work in her life. She didn't like that. That's why she was mad, yeah. because nobody wants to take accountability or ownership for their own health. Or like the poor old lady who keeps coming back into, onto our floor in a di- almost a diabetic coma um, because nobody is at her home feeding her correctly, making sure that she has healthy food and so she just eats a bunch of crap and she's diabetic as all hell and now she's in dka and we have to give her uh, have to put her on an iv of insulin so she doesn't die and she's covered in pee because she passed out and didn't know what was going on right and then all of a sudden daughter shows up day of discharge and she's like are you sure she's ready to go I don't know. Are you? Where were you? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to ask. Well, and then also, you know, we let, let you. I, I'm a realist and I would love for everybody to be an informed consumer. I would love everybody to have the luxury of doing research, but there, we have to meet those Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And for the people on the lower rung of our economy that are trying to make it work, that aren't taxing the system. Those are the ones that are workers, horses and the slave and they're working themselves into um, diseases. The stress is, is high for them. They, between like five jobs, you know, or being a single parent and have, holding two jobs, they don't have time to do that research. And I'm not expecting government to fix it. So for the people who have that time and that luxury, there needs to be a sense of, you know, um, let's help our fellow man. Like, it's not just us. We've gotten into the society where it's like, just do what's right for you. Take care of you. Who cares who it affects as long as if it's well, what's best for when you. When you live in a welfare state too, you make it a lot easier to do that because oh, yeah. then if you're, if you know, you create dependency, you didn't Absolutely. have any kids, your husband left you, whatever. You can always depend on the state to take care of your, you know, or your you know, have extra kids. Cause we reward that or as that well. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then it's not, I don't, the reason it's systemic is I don't think that there's, a malice or an ill intent for people to raise their kids in that system. They just, that's what they know. 
and they don't know to break out because they are trying that they're hitting that, you know, they're numbing, they're numbing instead of inciting people to take charge of their life and, and expect more from themselves. Um, we don't have a society that does that. So we have to take a real responsibility and not put it on the government because let's face it, they're doing a horrible job. Why would we want them to fix something that they're doing a horrible job at? Let's take ownership of this and start solving the problem as the, as a, as, a, as individuals and groups that care. It's like, Putting Jeffrey Epstein in charge of the daycare center, mm. you know, it's like let's not do that. Oh, that just got a horrible visual. Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> um, but I was just thinking too, you know, when it all comes down to personal responsibility, and I was just thinking this is going to be triggering for some people, but poor people are poor because of either circumstances or because of their own decisions. Yeah. You got there for a reason, but that's not why you stay there. But I think that there's um, a difference between like being just poor Mm -hmm. and then just being like broke. Like I'm going through a hard time right now. I lost my job. I have to had to take this less paying job just so I could have insurance. Whatever. That's broke. But then you were like, all right, uh, Millie, are you going to go to the gas station and get that carton of cigarettes? No, I was going to go get food from the grocery store. Yeah. Make sure you pick up them cigarettes. Or maybe. That's poor. That's a state of mind. Maybe not. Maybe not buy like lobster with your food stamps. Um, Yeah. And and I'm not being judgmental. I, like I mentioned before, I'm a single parent. Um, I wasn't like a teenager and I I do have support. So, uh, you know, my, my family and I are close and my son's family were really supportive. So I I wasn't down and out as many people, but I never wanted to be reliant on them. That's not their issue. They didn't make those choices. This was, you know, this was the result of my choices in life. It's a state of mind. I did. There was a period when, yeah, there's a period when I had my son, I was on um, our state funded insurance and WIC for a little bit to get my feet off the ground, get back in school, kind of get a game plan because originally my where I wanted to go the field I wanted to go was not going to be a very sturdy and stable environment for a child I mean I'm not saying I was like going to be a stripper or anything but you know in the arts industry you don't know when your paycheck's coming in and so and I and I loved science it's a marriage between art and science which is nursing and those are the two things that I love so um, I made some choices and I and I, I I got to the point where I was clearly making money where I could start paying everything my own and really start, you know, owning that single parenthood and figuring it out. I didn't want to depend on the government. And when I went in to say, I don't, I no longer need Wick. I no longer need him on, on 10 care. He stayed on 10 care for a little while, but they tried to convince me that I was still too poor to be on it, that I really needed to keep it. Like I was being talked into keeping government assistant. I was shocked. Yeah. But there was, I mean, and I will say, I, I understand it's, it's tough. You, you don't, there's some people who don't expect them. He, if they weren't raised in it and systemically taught that this is how you make a living um, and are okay with it because they've been immersed in it, it was jolting. Like there were women in people's faces because they took away their food stamps because they didn't report to the job that they had gotten for them. The government had gotten them a job and create and provide, it's called families first. And they provide, um, you know, uh, childcare for them and, and schooling s- system like preschool systems and things like that so that they teach their kids. And all she had to do was keep a part-time job at like a fast food restaurant. And she didn't report to work. She didn't call them and tell them what was going on. They called her several times, couldn't get her. And somehow it's their fault is that they had to do what was 
told to them to do, which was take away the food stamps until she made an appointment and re, um, re-upped them. But she was in this woman's face and she was just trying to do her job. And I was just mortified that that I was, a, I had, I was depending on a system that was so broken and it was just so eye opening for me. So, you know, I, I'm on both sides of the spectrum. I don't want to say that I don't have empathy and sympathy for people who are going through tough circumstances and sometimes just need a little help, but not to create dependency. And there's, there's a better way to do it than what, what we're doing. And that does tie into the hospital. Um, and certainly um, insurance is, is dictating, administration's dictating how we do this. I will mention this too, with the H caps and also the benchmarks that we have to meet to be able to be paid back by Medicare and Medicaid. And there's stipulations in every little, every little capacity, including hospice. Um, there is also, I kind of lost my train of thought there. So, um, well, Jesse, ask a question and then maybe it'll come back to me. It was, I think it was a point, important point that I've lost it. Um, well, I was just thinking when you were doing all of that, I was like, what is, who is the CEO of Centers for Medicare mm-hmm. and Medicaid Services? Yeah. And what does yeah. that person, how much does that person make? Yeah. And um, I'm trying to find it right now, but the, the name of the CEO is Verma Sima. And so I'm, oh, here's what I was going to say. So if um, our uh, reimbursement from CMS, or which is the Center for Medicare and Services, if you're not familiar is based on people's opinions of their care. If, you know, their and their opinion of their care is if they hit their call light and it takes forever for a nurse to respond or they don't think the re- nurses are responsible. Wouldn't a thoughtful person who's thinking out strategies brainstorm all the possibilities of how to recoup that money before they put into place a knee-jerk reaction, which is what most hospitals do? Okay, what's the biggest cost to any employer? The overhead for your for your salaries for your staff. Okay, so payroll is your biggest, is one of your biggest um, expenses. So I understand the knee-jerk reaction to, okay, well, let's cut how many nurses we have or how many employees we have, um, then we'll make that money. That's the short game. But in the long game, you're going to have less people available to provide those needs or provide that care that they're perceiving is good, whether it's good or not, because they got Doritos in a timely manner. Um, uh so the long game would be actually let's employ more people or let's support our staff so that they're not so spread thin that they can provide to these people what they perceive as a good care. And eventually, yeah, we might employ a few extra people and on the front and we're paying a little bit more, but those surveys are going to come back a lot better. You're going to have better perception of being cared for because you're going to have more people that are responsive. They're not going to be as stressed. So they're not going to be, I mean, let's face it. Sometimes when you're stressed, you're not aware of the energy you're bringing. You're not aware that when you're like, yeah, I'll get it for you, that you're saying it in a rushed way that may seem rude to people because you're thinking of the five next steps you have to do. And you're not really, like I said, tapped in and present and connecting with that person, making eye contact and saying, what do you really need? Is there anything else you need before I go? Um, and asking the, and sometimes the families do these surveys for people. Um, because they, you know, in ICU, those patients are not with it. So the yeah. families are the ones that fill it out. And so sometimes it's that small thing of being able to connect with the family and say, is there anything I can get you? Can I get you some warm coffee? I, I, I understand. I get that you don't, you're lactose intolerant. And the next day I bring in a container of lactose. Those things 
are the things that nurses would love to do for their patients and their family, but they don't have time to, and they're right. they're overextended. They're in They're in a real state of compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. and our employers and our government are not supporting those nurses and being able to make that connection and really care, which is what our job is. Well, one of the things that you said at the very beginning was that we are moving away from like a doctor centered approach where a lot of doctors were the the head of the hospital or their own practices. They don't yeah. even own their own practices yeah. anymore. And they would drive. They would drive the the system. And um, I think patients were a lot more satisfied when it was when a doctor was actually running the whole thing because the doctor understands what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But um, now we're now we're talking about people who have degrees in business or management. You're a number. Yeah, you're a and number. They don't see patients that they don't see patients as um, people. Or well, and they'll argue know. that they do. Like I, I, the oh. hospital systems I work for say safety is number one, but then you have a staffing ratio that's crap. It's not safe for the for the employee or the patient. And then you have like they never come and touch a patient. They, well, they have these ridiculous. Don't get involved until there's a where complaint. You have to go and check the patient's mm-hmm. room. Go and check on the patient every hour. Hourly rounding, yeah. And somehow that's going to make things safer. Which we do anyway, but we have to document it. Which takes us. We have to stop. Take time to document that we've done that instead of connecting with the patient. So right. it's like. If it's and they do drill into you, and it for for certain reasons that if it's not documented, it's not been done because we're in a state of defensive medicine. We're practically we're over treating people because we're scared of losing licenses. Of really, honestly, we're not. The hospital's scared, and they drill it into you because they don't want to lose money. So they'd rather you know put more burdens on on the people who are already burdened at the ground level. And what a lot of people don't know is even the hospitals don't employ the doctors anymore. So the doctors aren't not only aren't in charge of the hospitals anymore, the doctors that are the hospitalists, because, okay, if you don't understand what hospitalists are, back in the day when you used to make house calls and then we went to just private practices, those private practices or doctors who still made house calls, if you went to the hospital, they followed you there. They had, everybody mm-hmm. had admitting rights and treating rights and they knew their patients and they treated them. To stay afloat, these hospital, I mean, private practices are a dual job and that's hard because you're a doctor, but you're also running a business. And to make ends meet with the way Medicare and Medicaid is, they were having to see 100 patients versus 50. So that's why they only have five minutes in the room with you. That's why, because they have to go to electronic charting and they work defensive medicine, they don't look at you. Um, they're doing the best they can. They want to be able to care for you. They don't like the system either, um, but they're not. They're too busy to break the system or really question it. So yeah. now you've got other entities saying, okay, well, we'll take that off your plate. Let us buy your practice and management from a business standpoint. You just be a doctor. You get to be a doctor again. And that was great. Everybody was excited about that because that's what you strive for. And I've stepped down from leadership positions because I just, I was stressed out. I just wanted to be a nurse and connect with people and care. And I get the, the, uh, the inclination to do so. But now you've got people who are looking at but, but people like numbers and they're not giving the doctors the right. Then they start complaining, well, you're not seeing enough patients. Same thing with hospitals. So when you're seeing a doctor, not only is the administrator uh, administration saying they care, but they're really not showing it by action. Don't listen to their words. Watch their actions. Um, but yeah. they're also, you're, you're far removed because now you've got a second chief. You've got mm-hmm. a second cook in the kitchen um, uh, trying to dictate how things are done from the doctor's standpoint. And they're not communicating with administration. They're butting heads. They're negotiating contracts. All that stuff gets wrapped up in the minutia. And who loses out? The nurses on the front lines and the patients for sure. The patients are the ones that pay the biggest price, I think, because they don't, I can't even, uh, one of the other things that I was just thinking of is the hospital acquired infections. 
that we end up just having to pay for. So the insurance refuses to pay for those. Um, or 30-day readmits because we ended up discharging a patient too soon because we weren't able to fully look and see how the patient was doing throughout their time the first time around. Mm -hmm. Those are two things that we get dinged on at the hospital all the time. Like mm -hmm. that happens every single day that there's something like that happening. Hospital-acquired infections could be something like a catheter. Um, a central line infection. Yeah, like a, like a, C, a UTI from oh, a yeah. catheter or a central line, which is like an IV that goes into, like, your heart. A pick line or um, a port would be what yeah. you, would, you would see. If there's – and those can happen. Or I, midline. I, my thing is – or a fall. I was mm -hmm. thinking about that, too. Those yeah. are also things that we also get dinged on. But I was just thinking, like, all of these things could be prevented – if we just had enough staff, yeah. Like if we just had enough nurses to observe their patients, clearly. Fully. And there are, I mean, there are numbers out there because when I did quality improvement, one of the biggest things I was charged with doing was to reduce the fall rate. So I came up with everybody hated it, but it uh, it came to me because there was a patient family member. If we're not going to give enough staff members on the floor, there's a patient family member that saw a gentleman kind of shakingly trying to get up and walk and she was concerned so she alerted the staff and that prevented a fallout. I said, what if we created a culture of where we take care of each other and don't expect the nurse to do everything but like yes. we put out there, okay, if you see a patient in yellow, holler at a fellow. It was lame and I had different little catchphrases for it but I and started, instituted that they from head to toe be in yellow if there are high falls risk. They have the wristband already so we put them in yellow socks and you know, the first thing I got from the people that were helping me put this in process, oh, they're going to look like Big Bird. Who cares if they don't fall? Why do we have this culture of anything new or different we don't want to do and we're resistant? But at the core level, they have all these numbers that say, well, actually having more staff doesn't reduce falls. It does. You can skew numbers to look any way you want it. Right. Um, it always does. And it also means that you have people who are well rested and they can think clearly when you're rushed and you have, you're there for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Like when you work in a hospital, you're there a 12 hour shift. That means from like seven in the morning to seven at night or seven at night to seven in the morning, you're there on the floor and you have, I don't know how many different things that happen. You would think that with that amount of time, you'd have plenty of time to sit down and have a lunch or go to the bathroom nope. or any of that stuff. But that never is the case ever because they always understaff and you're always in a rush and you can't think clearly yeah. when, especially when you have like three 12 hour shifts in a row, which is how they usually like to do it by that third shift. You are so sleep deprived and you've, you're so exhausted. It takes you two days to bounce back. You from can't really, you can't, it does. I mean, you shouldn't be having to see that many patients or, you know, sign a legal document at that point right. because you're not thinking clearly. So that's what you're dealing with in the hospital. And so the reason why I was thinking that this was such an important thing is that um, the reason why we do it this way is because uh, the reason why hospitals do it this way is like we have so many regulations that the hospital has to follow. And that's based off of... There's some hospitals that do eight to 10 hour shifts too, but... They're very rare. Though. Yeah, it's rare. And um, but they we still have to follow uh, guidelines with Medicare and the federal government. You have the patient or pain is the fifth vital sign. Like I said, you have the the hospital acquired infections that we can't pay for. Um, nobody can be turned away at the ER. Yeah. Which well, and I, so I will say this: in some places, I think it's Oklahoma University, they started implementing that. Okay. Even if you're not an emergent or urgent patient, we'll see you, but you have to pay the $500 copay up front. 
And so that has cut down on some of the abuse that they've had for people who yeah. not, are non-emergent and urgent that can go to these, you know, dock in a box or clinics. Mm-hmm. And there's some ERs that have attached like a clinic to the ER that's a little separate. I wish that there was more, um, I wish that nurses, RNs were given a little bit more autonomy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think that we really should have that autonomy is as a triage nurse in the ER, mm-hmm. if you have a whole family of people with lice, that's not an emergency. Right. You should have the autonomy, the power to turn that family away and point them to the nearest like CVS store. Right. And I, and I, uh, triage wise, um, it's just exhausting how many times people come up to you and complain about not being seen while you're still trying to get people. People don't understand the triage system. And I trained people in triage in the ER and did triage. And it's one of my favorite things to do because you get to decide basically who's serious and who's not. So when you see these people in the ER that have been sitting there for forever, they've been triaged. A nurse has talked to them uh, that has been trained because you don't get to triage until you've been a nurse for a long time. You can't triage until you've been a nurse in the ER for at least a year at most places. And some places it's even more stringent. I think it's actually changing, though, because like you were saying, you know, the skeleton crew, they don't want to pay the salaries like a more experienced nurse is going to be paid higher than a newer inexperienced nurse. And uh, just having worked where I've worked now, private duty, and I've had to go see my patient in the hospital. Yeah. I was amazed at how young these ER nurses were. I, I didn't see one seasoned nurse. And one of the first ER I worked in, every time I go back, it's not a mixture of old school, which they need that gut instinct that they've developed over time, with the new evidence-based practice of that a student would know because they're fresh out of nursing school. They should work together, not eat each other's young. We say that nurses eat their young because the old generation's burnout they're resentful of the new ones coming in thinking they know everything you need to change your perspective take some ownership for the energy you bring but then you've also got the new ones coming in thinking all oh, these old people are burnt out and bitter and they don't even care about their patients and so then they're they're like i never want to be like that so they don't work together there's no collaboration and there's not a good mix anymore you yeah. see just mainly young nurses and i'll tell you why because they can young pay nurses look ner- they look scared as hell well and they can pay them dirt cheap because when a nurse gets older and they get burnt out they ask they should ask for more they're valuable yeah the the hospitals used to pay for that because they saw the value they don't see the value anymore they'll be like okay i'll give it to a student who doesn't know what they're doing doesn't have that gut instinct that they've developed yet through seeing more and more things happen and that triage nurse does set the climate for the rest of the er so it's important that that person be very intelligent not just about that, about the science behind it and what to look for, but also that gut instinct that takes time to develop. You have to be a nurse for a while for that to happen. Well, now that leads me to another thing I was going to say too about ratios. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a big thing in nursing in California. They've man, they've made it mandatory that mm-hmm. there's ratios. So if you have a floor and you have so many patients, and it depends on the floor you're at. Like if you're in ICU, you're going to have two patients per RN. If you're on the floor, you're going to have, what is it, six patients mandatory or max yeah. per RN. And then um, two to one in the ICU, four to one in the ER, unless it's a high, higher acuity. Like, you know, if you're in the trauma rooms with it. And then the I think it care. just depends. Like I know in one, on one of the floors that I worked on, it was the cancer floor. And we had stem cell ner- uh, patients and they were one on one to yeah. one because the stem cell patients were just. Yeah. Always- and like in the ICU, if you have what's called CRT, which is continuous renal replacement therapy, yeah. which is essentially a, a continuous form of dialysis because their body can't take taking a whole bunch of volume out in a dialysis setting and then do it every three days. It, it puts a lot of strain on the body. That's one on one. Open heart right when they come out of open heart. That's one on one. Yeah. 
Um, so those things are one-on-one. And so, yeah, like I was saying, like, I think it would depend on the, the patient themselves and what's going on with them too. But Mm -hmm. California is making that state mandated. And that's nurses take DC. That's a movement. And again, I'm here. I am saying don't get government involved, but if they created the problem, there are things that they can do to help mitigate what they put into place. Let's face it. Once you put something in place, it's hard to get it back out of place. But if they, in some ways, are ding it's not just the government it's also these big corporations that are making these decisions that never touch a patient if they get dinged for over stressing and overloading a nurse they're going to stop doing that because it comes down to money for them yeah and i think that what's also happening is like you underestimate how much hospitals have to save money or have to make a profit Mm -hmm. in order to pay their nurses in order to pay for this extra staffing so there's going to be some shortcuts Mm -hmm. so there may be in some cases like i've seen where they like we just talked about they don't hire seasoned nurses because they don't want to pay that higher um, salary so they're going to just get a bunch of new nurses and they're going to lay off the older nurses or try to get the older nurses out um they they may do things like um cut corners on other areas of the hospital, like mm-hmm. cut staffing in other areas of the hospital or the quality of food is not going to be as good. Or, you know, you just got to think about the let's face it. The nutrition in hospitals is why are you yes. getting a diabetic person, white bread rolls and like, it's just and insane. And milk I think and sometimes like what they do is they don't hire as many full-time people either. Right. So they don't get benefits. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of stuff that you, it sounds great on paper. Like, yay. California's finally doing something, but yeah, they can't fix everything. I see both sides. I mean, there's there's a and pro I think and con to everything. Also, I think it was also like um, somebody who was from. I, I talked with a nurse that was from California, just saying it it isn't like I think she was a manager. Mm-hmm. It's like it really isn't helping because then it's also like you're always trying to call people in and you can't always get people in when because as you know when. You're working at a hospital, mm-hmm. it's 24 hours. You may discharge and admit people. And if there's like a major accident somewhere, all of a sudden you have all these admissions coming mm-hmm. in and you don't have the staff. Yeah. So you have to call people out of their beds in the middle of the night and hope you can get people in. Right. And if you don't, then another thing that happens is that the hospital would be fine. Or, or you just don't even have the already hired staff to call in to support that yeah. because you are working on a skeleton crew that's working, but also... You're, you don't want a lot of people on your payroll, so you don't you don't you don't prepare for stuff like that based on your staff that you hire. Yeah. So then, what ends up happening is that the hospital will get fined because they had a violation with the ratios, mm-hmm. and they had to a, a nurse had to agree to take on. You know, they ha- there's all this legal paperwork they have to do mm-hmm. if they if they have to take more than the ratio. Yeah. So you get a knee jerk reaction it's definitely just, where they take shortcuts to make yeah. again, they take they took that by cutting staff when they first started getting the um the survey for the reimbursement. So then you've also got that going on. You've got um the ratio is just it's you're not gonna like she said, you're not gonna ensure that you have somebody who's seasoned that can actually multitask and make an efficient rounding, even if that's done and they're going to have to carry the weight of that person. There's still going to be some stressors. There's still going to be that. My my solution to the hospital thing is let's let's take away all these all these mandates, like these 30 day readmits. Let's get rid of the hospital acquired infections. Let's get rid of all these mandatory things that um, 
bog us down. That bog us down. Well, and let's be honest, it's not fair to the doctors, too. And let's get rid too. of the HCAP scores, for the love of God. Can we just well, and I, mean, if I get that you want good care. We want to ensure that but it's you gotta, good care. But you're asking the wrong question. So if the doctors don't do the right thing and that person doesn't, and then there's a bounce back and that begins to be a trend, we need to fix that. I get that. Well, let's but not make reimbursement based off of Well, that. or if we do, let's, let's consider some of the variables. Are they compliant? Is it documented that they're not compliant? Did they pick up their medications that we called in for them or did they pick up a script? You know, where's the ownership? We got to have a little bit of consumer yeah. ownership. And uh, again, like there is a knee jerk reaction too. like, for example, in the ICU to cut back on the hospital acquired infections because they are at a higher rate because you're not moving. You're in a sedentary position. We have beds that move and roll so you don't get bed sores and things like that to assist us because we don't have enough staff and that's wonderful things that help us out, but it costs money on the front end. But um, what we're doing is there, there's a knee jerk reaction that, so now we'd have to do what's called a CHG bath twice a day. So each shift has to do a bath, which on a patient that's vented, you need to have another nurse turn them most of the time. Unless they're really tiny, I was I, I was able to figure out how to turn them on my own and get the bed changed. You have to get the bed changed and, and sheets on underneath them. Um, they're on a vent, so you have to be careful about how you roll them so they don't pop off the vent. Um, you have to have other staff, and they have to do the same thing with their patients. While they're maybe running a CRRT machine that's one-on-one patient, or they've, they're tending to a trach that's getting clogged off. I mean, there's constantly little emergencies in the ICU. And so what they they did instead of, instead of just saying okay let's use our noggin there's some people in the in the ICU that are just there for a day or two for a higher level observation they they don't have a vent they don't you know they don't have a, a pick line they at most may have a middle do we really need to do two CHG baths and that happened because they they were they were falling through the cracks they said okay just to cover it instead of just making sure we even chart one if we chart two then we'll definitely be compliant so they overdid it or just make it. Like the CHG baths is just to keep people from being infected, but that may be a patient that doesn't, they're pretty clean. That's they, what I'm saying. They yeah. don't need it. They're not on like a the, vent. They're not, just, they don't have a midline or a pick. have this one size fits all thing for everything. But they said, let's do it for everybody. Technically, so here's the we don't thing need I've thought to. about. And this is something that, um, and that's hospital, that tried. one's hospital driven because really, honestly, we only have to chart one per day. Um, to meet that. So they were saying, well, if we do two a day, we make the staff do one each shift, we'll get it covered. And we get yelled at if we don't do it and chart it. I know. And you get in trouble for it. But they don't, you know, it doesn't, you know, and those CHG baths do prove to cut it down if you do at least once, but you let the nurses again, back to your autonomy, know which ones need it, which ones don't. And so here's some things that just so, just to kind of sum up, like how, why hospital stays are so expensive. You can't turn anybody away from the ER. 30-day readmits, after, if they come back within 30 days, that that next hospital stay, they, the insurance refuses to pay. There's diagnostic-related, um, diagnostic-related And when they say they're refusing to pay, like, keep in mind, they are basically telling the doctor, you didn't provide sufficient care. Right. And that's insulting. They did. But the patient didn't take on what they were supposed to. Diagnostic-related groups is basically saying that, um, the insurance will pay for certain, um, surgeries or certain diagnoses at a certain up to a certain point if they have any complications from the surgery or from the disease process that gets eaten um what else was i going to say oh like for hospital acquired Mm -hmm. infections Mm -hmm. uh falls um another thing i i didn't mention but was going on when i was um when i was at the hospital last time i worked at the hospital um there's a thousand dollar fine for every time you do not ask a patient if they've had their vaccines so you have to ask them if they've had the flu vaccine, if they want the vaccine, 
and then the pneumonia vaccine. Oh, and let's talk about MRSA too. If you have MRSA in your nares um, after you've been in the hospital, if we don't, when you go in the hospital, if you don't have somebody swab your nose, both nostrils, to get a baseline of whether or not you came into the hospital with MRSA, which is methylene resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which we all have colonizing on our skin, that when it becomes a problem is when it has access to our internal system. Um, don't swab any nurse. You'll probably got MRSA on your skin or your nose, but you as a person do too. So we have to do that within a certain amount of hours when you get admitted to the floor, not necessarily the ER. Um, And if you pop back later, uh, having it, having MRSA in your nose, that's considered hospital acquired, but it's everywhere. Um, So those are the types of things. And then on top of that, you've got... Um, you've got the, what was the other one that we have to test for? That's just really silly. I can't think of it right now. Um, there's other, there's like, I don't remember. There was a couple, but I was also thinking too, like hospitals have to pay not only for the nurses and the direct care staff and all that stuff, but then there's like this whole other office where they do audits and they make mm -hmm. sure that all the charting is correct. They, um, that's what I did as quality improvement. Yeah. And those people have a job because of insurance. And they are, they're like an added cost. We have to pay them to make sure so that we do get reimbursed by insurance. Mm-hmm. So, okay. If you think that a hospital is a just cesspool of capitalism that is all about profit and it's screwing over all the poor people, then I suggest you just listen to this podcast. I suggest you read um, Primal, The Primal Prescription. And what was the book that you talked about? Um, uh, in it... It's Martin Macri's, um, he's a physician uh, for John Hopson. He's a surgeon. Um, it's called Unaccountable. And then his second book was The Price We Pay. Um, all of this, mm-hmm. all of the reasons we just mentioned right now is because of government regulation and because of insurance. And insurance, no matter, if you, even if you get like a private insurance, like a Blue Cross Blue Shield coverage, or you get like Humana or Aetna, Cigna, whatever, they are looking towards what Medicare is doing. They're dictating. And, the and they're just going to do exactly what Medicare does and maybe do a couple things differently. But that's the gold standard. And Medicare is a government. And they've taken away not just the autonomy of the nurses, but the autonomy of the doctors. Because I'll, I'll just share my personal story. I have fibroids, um, uterine fibroids. Um, and they were pretty persistent, pretty big. And there's a fam- familial um, tie-in. So... Uh, it would have been just better just to go ahead and do the hysterectomy, but we had to go through an ablation. We had to go through some other things that cost the taxpayer more money if I had been on Medicare or Medicaid. Um, and I will say that the insurance company is not the only place dictating it. It's just these uh, administrations too. So, you know, kind of start questioning how those are driven and, and pay attention to when you get those surveys, fill those out, put your opinion in those. Cause you as a consumer do have power because of those surveys. That's the bonus of those actually. Yeah. My suggestion is, that we, like you were saying, we opt out of the whole system as much as we can. Um, there are, pro, like you talked about, the what you mentioned before is like a concierge type medicine where you pay like a monthly fee and you get all these um, things included, like your labs, your, your checkups. If you have a cold, you can go in and be seen right away. I think we should just opt out of the system as much as possible. There also are insurances through um, like health shares, mm-hmm. through like they can be religious health shares. Um, I know that some, like Ryan is one of the guys in our um, network. He was talking about his religious health health share. Maybe he can talk about it on one of his episodes because uh, we're running out of time. But 
there are ways to opt out of the system. They are starting to do something new in some places where instead of having to go to the hospital for surgery, there's literally like surgery centers Mm -hmm. where you get your surgery and you stay for like two or three days to recover. And then, you know, um, it just depends. And so that's something that we as a whole society to really push for. Um, if you want to really help out a nurse, don't yell at the nurse. Don't villainize the people. Because here's the, if you <laughs> think the hospital. don't complain yeah. that you didn't get such and such a time. You should say, what are you guys doing that's keeping my nurse from being able to come and serve and help and me? put that in your survey. Um, yeah. Take notes. I mean. My my nurse was so busy, she she couldn't even give me my pain medicine because she was too busy with But when she patients. was there, she was personal and great. But she just seemed yeah. stra- stressed. Say that. Stop villainizing them and, and empower them by saying, you know, thank you for what you do. Just a thank you sometimes. You get more flies with honey than with vinegar. But yeah. And there's so much more that I, we could just go on about with the healthcare system. And maybe we can come back and do this uh, again and talk about more of the outpatient type stuff. But that's really what's going on in hospitals right now. And as much as we can try to just opt out of the whole system together, altogether, I think it will kind of force some of these um these hospitals to kind of maybe do yeah. a different model. I would love for there to be a hospital that doesn't take insurance that just is a fee for service yeah. type of and thing. And on that in that same vein, like when we say profit non for profit, it's a it's a facade. It's all it's a facade. It's all for profit. It's, it's always for they're all still run poorly and it's a cesspool that Jesse is noticing I'm drowning in but she's not laughing this time so but what I want to say nice little tie-in huh so what I want to say is too if you look at the hospital as a cesspool and you don't want to go there please again don't villainize because the people that are there got into the business to care but they're just compassion fatigued think if you did that all day long you have nothing left for your family when you come home too so have a little compassion for them and they'll have compassion for you that's what we got into the job to do and so, don't use the ER as your personal yeah. <laughs> doctor's office. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it here because i got to pick up my son, and I'm sure Kristen's got some things to do, yeah. and I have to pee. So. Yeah. Thanks so much, mm-hmm. guys, for letting me be a guest. And, um, yeah, take responsibility, do what you can, and what, what do you bring to the table, and how can you change? Yes. And I'm going to just end it here with saying what Maddie always says at the end, which is keep it sane, keep it peaceful, and keep it voluntary. Mm-hmm.